Welcome to this month's Cityscape Wire podcast. I'm your host, Tanisha, and in our latest episode, I'm speaking to Shireen Santosham, the former Chief Innovation Officer for the City of San Jose in California. Shireen tells me about the efforts she and her team led to build the smart city vision of San Jose to transform it into the most innovative city in the States. We also dive into the global concept of smart cities, the challenges, disparities, and opportunities it still presents, and discuss her current role as Executive Director at Nextdoor Kind Foundation and Head of Social Impact at Nextdoor, as well as her role as a lecturer at Stanford University, where she teaches a class on the future of cities. Shireen, thank you so much for joining us on the Cityscape Wire podcast. Thanks for having me. So reading up about you, I mean, you're incredibly passionate about bridging the gap between people and technology. In fact, you know, your work around future cities is all about how technology has the potential to really make a significant impact on the built environment and the way people live. And this seems to be central to your 20-year career. And before we delve into that, I'd really like to hear from you. You're the executive director of Nextdoor Kind Foundation, as well as the head of social impact at Nextdoor. Can you tell us a bit about these roles that you currently look after now? Sure. So I currently work at Nextdoor, which is a neighborhood app. It's it's how you think about bringing the informal network of a neighborhood online. And the company serves about one in three households in the U.S. We're in 11 countries around the world and have about 80 million users. And so my role there is to run the corporate foundation, give away micro grants, small grants to people doing hyper local things, trying to improve their neighborhoods, and then also working with our technology teams to make our product have more social impact. So how can we build more social connection between people? How can we get neighbors to help neighbors? You know, there's a lot of conversation about social isolation and the sort of degradation of communities around the world. And so how can we really rebuild that civic fabric? So I I love doing that work. And I also teach at Stanford Business School, a class on the future of cities and why cities exist, how they've developed over time, what are the big trends that are happening? How does technology interact in cities? And so it's a, it is really a passion of mine. Well, you mentioned, yeah, you're a big advocate of inclusive cities and using technology to further that. So how do you build inclusive cities with tech? Basically, first of all, let's break this down. What does this mean? And where can we see the best case studies? Yeah, it's a big question, right? Is what is an inclusive city? Like who are cities for? And, you know, Today, about 50% of the population lives in cities, but that's going to grow rapidly to over 70% by 2050. And cities are really, you know, they're an economic organizing function. It's an efficient way to get people to jobs. But what we see is like oftentimes wide disparities within cities. And so, you know, the World Bank thinks about an inclusive city as spatial inclusion. So that's things like access to infrastructure. So do you have clean water, housing, sanitation, transportation, regardless of, of where you live in a city? Another aspect that the World Bank talks about is social inclusion. So do you have a voice, right? Are, are you heard or are you marginalized within a city structure? And then economic inclusion, like do you live in the formal or informal economy. 
And so that's sort of the official definition. I would add, you know, another element to this, which is a technological inclusion. So can you participate in the digital world? Because what you see increasingly is things like housing, utilities, job applications all require digital access. And so if you don't have those things, then you are really outside, you know, the formal economy. And so I do think of technology as really critical to building an inclusive city and helping cities to become more efficient. Where do you see the best case studies? You mentioned the UN has a list. I imagine that list is constantly changing and being redefined. But yeah, where do you see the best case studies at the moment? Is this just a privilege that exists in Europe and in the States? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think if you look at social outcomes, a lot of the best case studies you see are in places like Zurich, Copenhagen, Helsinki, Luxembourg, you know, these these sort of European cities that tend to have smaller populations, well-established social safety nets, healthcare, social mobility, because they have great education, free education. And the reality is for most parts of the world, those systems are not developed or they maybe are in countries where the funding isn't available. And so, you know, the question is, can you take some of these lessons that you see in these wealthier places that have been able to drive social outcomes and and bring them to, to other contexts? And you do see certain parts of the world really able to do that in interesting ways. And so there's a lot of things that are written about China's development, but certainly their use of technology is very interesting, right? Like being able to build transportation systems, being able to build, you know, apps. Like when last time I was in China, you know, people can pay in the same app, they can pay their utilities, they can pay their mortgage. And it's a very efficient system. And there are, of course, you know, downsides around privacy and consequences if you're not in the system, right? So like, there's a lot of people that might be left out. But, you know, I think the advantage of being in a developing country context is that you can leapfrog some of the built environment challenges that you see in these developed countries, right? So, you know, in the US, like working in cities, it's really challenging sometimes to build new types of infrastructure because you have a really, for for example, an old transit system or old train, you know, that's there and it's very expensive to upgrade versus just purchasing the state of the art system or you know, learning from the mistakes of others. And so I think there's a lot of great individual examples of doing this well and, you know, being able to really drive sort of economic benefits from it. You mentioned you lecture at Stanford and you lecture around trends. What are the current trends that we're seeing when it comes to cities at the moment? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the most important functions of a city is the built environment. And so as you think about the green revolution, trying to electrify our you know, car system around the world, you know, what are the, what's the role of cities, right? So there's certainly national policies that need to be implemented around building that infrastructure and, and incentives for cities. But like, you know, one of the biggest inhibitors, for example, to electric vehicles is charging infrastructure. So cities have to sort of lead the way because people sort of want electric vehicles, but they're worried about not having access. You know, there's a gas station in 
you know, every couple of miles, wherever you go in the world, but there is not the same for electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And so cities taking policies to to get more of that built environment upgraded is really, really essential. And I think they can really play a, a strong role in driving technological innovation because city governments, I mean, they're hyper-local so that you're really able to see what the challenges are on the ground. And a lot of national policies are actually really driven from good ideas happening at the city level. Well, I find it quite interesting because you, especially your work, you see technology as enhancing human potential when it comes to inclusivity. Now, can you explain this in relation to just building equitable societies? Yeah, I mean, with every new innovation, there's always, you know, pros and cons. But on balance, I see technology is highly positive in the world. So, you know, I think about when I was a kid and just starting you know, the internet was just coming online towards the end of my high school career and started really using the, the internet in college. I was probably the last generation to do that. And now, I mean, you know, if I was interested in something, I had to like go to the library, you know, look at the encyclopedia. Like, I mean, you had the level of effort was really high to learn. And certainly there are some sort of personal character building elements of that, that the next generation may have lost. But on the other hand, you know, like if you are really interested in a subject or want to develop a new skill and nobody around you in your immediate community has that skill, you can go online and, you know, pretty much get those skills for free and skill development educational opportunities there. And, and that just really widens up kind of the world, right? And even in terms of things like community, your community isn't just your immediate group, but it can be like communities, online communities for different things. So I think on balance, it's a really positive aspect of growth for humans and for society. But there are certainly negatives that we need to watch out for in our learning and need to combat. So you say equitable societies as well. We're also talking about women. We're talking about minorities. That I suppose it, it falls under that umbrella of equitable societies, right? When we talk about inclusive cities as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think for certainly a lot of my work has been around looking at gender disparities in access and use of technology. And, you know, one of the benefits of, especially in sort of the developing world, of having access to th things like mobile money for women is, you know, they can keep their private savings private. So like they can, you know, utilize that money for their family. What oftentimes used to happen when women didn't have access to mobile money was whenever there was sort of a crisis from a f extended family member or a neighbor, you know, people, you know, knew where <laughs> the money was kept in a coffee jar and, you know, the cupboard in the kitchen. And oftentimes women's savings would get raided. And, and that was something that would come up when we were interviewing women in, across Africa, across Asia. Um, and mobile money allowed them to privately save for things like sending their kids to school or rainy day fund in case their, you know, the crops failed that year or whatever. And so having access to technology can really be a very empowering thing for women. Um, 
And then access to information. So when I was doing this, some, some work in Myanmar a few years ago, and the country had just opened up around, you know, 2014, 2015, it had just been open for a couple of years. People really had, there had been no internet access. They'd just gotten mobile phones. And so there was a lot of information coming in and some of that you've probably read about has been problematic from political points of views. But one of the projects that I particularly worked on was around health information for pregnant women. And so there was a small group that was created an app that women could go in and learn what was happening to their bodies, what was happening to the baby, what kind of symptoms to look out for, when to seek health advice. And it allowed women to really understand what was happening. And actually, they got information so much so that other family members started to get jealous of this like information. And so they actually made a, a male version of it. And so these are the kinds of things that's, that's, that we sort of take for granted in the West because we're inundated with all this information. But, you know, these things are really transformative. And those questions that you might have about health that maybe culturally looked unfavorably on, so you can't necessarily go ask your mother-in-law about this. And so it's it can really play a, a role in economic opportunity, health opportunity. There really is, you know, a lot of benefit to it overall. That's incredibly interesting. Could you tell me a bit more about uh, the findings of this research as well? I know Myanmar was uh, one of the examples that you had. Yeah, I, at the time I, I did a report on the gender gap in digital access and use between men and women. And it was when I was working at the GSMA, which is the Mobile Phone Industry Association. And so back in 2015, when we were looking at, you know, across, you know, low and middle income countries, how big is that gap on average? We found it was about 14% across all these countries. And we did on the ground research and everywhere from, you know, Colombia to China to Jordan, we went and we knocked on doors and, and it was one of the first of its kind studies at that scale around digital access and use for women. And so it really got a lot of attention and changed the conversation around technology because even at the GSMA at the time, they were not measuring the difference in digital access and use for men and women. So they'd go out and do studies for the industry around how many people use mobile phones, how many people are using the internet across all these countries, but they would never break it out by gender. And so after we put out this report, the organization said, oh, actually, we should be doing this because we're missing a lot of insight around which segments of the population are actually being excluded. And in some countries like in South Asia, you'd see like a much bigger gap. So you saw like 14% in overall, but you might see up into the 20s or 30% in certain more conservative societies where either the cost of the technology or fears around harassment for women prevented women from getting access to the technology. And so, you know, we've seen quite a lot of progress since then. That was back in 2015. And so now I think the latest report that GSMA did basically cut that in half. So now it's only about 7%. And so we're starting to get into the territory of really, you know, how do you get into those real marginalized corners of society? But there's been a, a quite a lot of progress. And I imagine we'll, we'll continue to see the progress and, and start to thinking about, you know, the 
negative consequences, right? Because we do see some of the criticism of organizations like Instagram and on the mental health of young girls in the US, for example. But access to the technology, I think overall is, is, a, is a positive for women. And I imagine, especially on a city level, that improves as well, like your relation with the city in terms of how you get around in terms of access, that would obviously help within these marginalized communities as well. Yeah, and it's an interesting question, right, about technology and marginalized communities within a city, because on the one hand, what you want to do is reduce the administrative burden for people, right? So if you've ever, you know, talked to someone or you have a family member who's had to get social services, you know you can get ping-ponged around to different offices. It can take a lot of time either calling or waiting in line. And so, you know, for marginalized communities that typically have the least amount of income, you know, they're sometimes making a decision between showing up for work or trying to wait in this line and they go to work and then they just miss out on the social service that they may qualify for and may need. And so bringing social services online, making them easier to access can actually be really beneficial to a marginalized community, right? Because you, you know, there's a phrase, the poorer you are, the better you are at math. And so you're constantly making these trade-offs, right? Like around, do I spend on this or do I spend on this, right? And so it can be truly beneficial. But on the other hand, if you're a marginalized community, you're more worried about things like fraud because the consequences are very high for you. Like if you get defrauded online, you know, you might get kicked out of your house because you can't make rent that month. And so building that trust around the technology is really important. And people aren't always, you know, documented in the same way that someone who has a white collar job would be, right? So, you know, that's the downside of trying to just put all these services online without any in-person support. And so I'm a strong believer in that you need both. Like the the power is having both. It's not in just sort of cutting all of the in-person, you know, old school phone calls. <laughs> um, but it is certainly a way for people to both participate economically, but also socially, like, so can they get their voice heard? You know, I, in city government, when I worked as the chief innovation officer for, for San Jose, you know, our council meetings are... 1, 1 p.m. on a Tuesday. Most people are working. So you see a lot of like retirees or folks, you know, who end up getting a kind of an outsized voice, right? And so bringing those meetings online, allowing for online comments and participation allows more people to have their voice heard. This is Cityscape Wire. What are some of the greatest challenges that cities are currently facing and how is technology helping bridge those gaps? I mean, here I'm, I'm based in, in, in the UAE, in, in Dubai. And I mean, here, for instance, we're, you know, over the last I, five years or so, we've been moving towards a paperless society. So everything would be moving online and the government has made it really easy in order to do that. But I imagine it's not as easy in different parts of the world. And of course, there's still some challenges here. But I imagine there are different challenges everywhere. But what would you say are some of the greatest challenges that you're seeing in cities? I think, you know, certainly in the US, but I think globally is the growing inequality, lack of social mobility that is driven by a combination of factors. But 
some of it is around lack of adequate infrastructure in cities, right? So like maybe not great transportation systems, educational systems. I think we're going to see increasing issues around water, right? Water access because we're running around, running out of groundwater globally and we don't have good governance mechanisms writ large around water in most countries. And so cities often are like sort of the tip of the spear on infrastructure, where there's a lot of national policies and things that influence whether or not, you know, a local government can have enough money to have adequate infrastructure. But you really feel it at the city level, right? If, if those systems fail, right? If the water system fails, if the transportation system doesn't work well, then people can't get to jobs, they can't move around. And so aging infrastructure, infrastructure upgrades, you know, certainly in the United States are sort of top of mind. And there are actions that have been taken through the infrastructure bill and things to try and upgrade some of our infrastructure. But, you know, I think that the combination of lack of infrastructure and rising inequalities of like, haves and have nots is really creating this big challenge for cities, right? Because people are the middle sort of falling out of the the city infrastructure. And so I do think that needs to be addressed through, you know, multiple prongs. I also think that, you know, people tend to discount local government quite a lot. They talk about how it's so inefficient and so this and so that. And And actually, a lot of really big decisions get made at the local level. So, you know, I was in local government in Silicon Valley and, you know, things like, you know, where the next big tech headquarters is going to be, like if it's going to be in your city. I mean, those decisions get made and that brings in hundreds of thousands of jobs and can make a big, huge difference. And so people shouldn't kind of dismiss local government as like small potatoes, because actually the decisions that get made there influence the lives of millions of people in a city and potentially drive sort of economic outcomes for like whole regions. I mean, that's a good point because Anna takes us to the next question, which is you worked as the chief innovation officer for the city of San Jose. I mean, and where you looked at closing that digital divide. Uh, Now let's talk about that for a brief moment and the successes that you and your team had. Yeah, well, what we were seeing is, I mean, being in Silicon Valley, you know, we're on the leading edge of technology in the world, right? And so you see like the most wondrous inventions coming out of, you know, the Valley AI and all these things. And I joined the team in San Jose and was looking around and thinking, you know, like, we have all of these amazing companies and inventions and opportunities here. But then we are also seeing, you know, eight, 10 people living, families living in a like two bedroom apartment because they can't afford the rent. The cost of living is very high in, in the Valley. And so I was like, we definitely have a digital divide here, but there's not good metrics around it. So, you know, our government in the U.S. doesn't really measure it, measure digital access very well. So if you have one connection within an entire census track, which in rural areas can be millions of miles, that's considered a covered area. And in cities, it can be hidden because like you might have these pockets of people who don't have it and are poor, 
But then overall, there's like generally internet access in the area. And so the urban digital divide is very hidden. And so I commissioned a study, you know, in partnership with Stanford and actually some telecom companies to do, you know, street surveys of people in these neighborhoods to figure out what was going on. And what we found is we had about a hundred thousand people in our city that weren't connected to the internet, which is pretty shocking for Silicon Valley. Exactly. In Silicon Valley, a hundred thousand that were not connected to the internet. And how many people are in Silicon Valley? Well, this was specifically San Jose. And so we're about a million people. So it was about percent of the population. But among certain demographics, it was like a third of Latinx families. It was close to half of African-American families. So you talk about like marginalized communities. And so, and then at the same time, we had the big telecom companies, you know, banging on our door saying, we want to build these networks of the future, 5G, you know, at the time it was 5G coming in. And they wanted to use city infrastructure to do that because the way you deploy the networks, city streetlight poles are actually the, the right height. They can hold the equipment in the right way. And so they really wanted access to this infrastructure that we owned as the city. And so what we decided to do was basically charge them fees for deploying these networks across the city. We discounted those fees the more they covered and the more like low-income neighborhoods they covered. So like they pay less if they're willing to cover more and go into the, you know, more marginalized neighborhoods. And then we took the proceeds from those funds and then put it into a digital inclusion fund. It's about $24 million to connect these 100,000 residents. And so um, that project has been going on for probably about four years now. And so there's a whole coalition of nonprofits and our public library and our schools that have been, you know, chipping away at these 100,000 residents. And we've seen quite a lot of progress. And in an interesting way, COVID actually helped accelerate the process because prior to that, people were like, what do you mean there's a problem in Silicon Valley with internet access? Everybody has internet here and people just didn't it, even though you're showing them the data. But after COVID happened, people really understood because they were seeing what was happening with the schools. They were seeing, you know, that digital divide in real life. And so really helped accelerate the work in the city. And it's been quite positive to watch. Yeah, that's amazing. So can this model work in other parts of the world? Or was this a perfect storm in that it's Silicon Valley, so you have access to all these to all these big guys, so it makes it easier. Can this work elsewhere? I think it certainly can work in other cities. I mean, the the thing that we had to do was align the business incentives correctly because it is, you know, these networks are expensive to deploy. And so, you know, what we promised these carriers was if you give us this, you know, money, we also said, we'll make sure that you get your permits on time We'll build a team internally in the city that you can meet all your business goals because we're going to deploy it on this, you know, timeline. And so I think it's not just about kind of forcing on the private sector, like, hey, you know, you need to pay for all these things. It's also it's, it's saying, hey, here's the partnership. What does this look like? And, you know, the reality was we actually ended up getting, you know, at the same time we were doing this, we were actually 
in the policy realm at the national level, getting quite a bit of pushback because the carriers were trying to get access to city infrastructure across all cities in the United States. And they were actually successful at doing that. So we got in right before that law went into effect. But this model would have been like a more useful model for the rest of the country. So it can work very well if done correctly, but is something that takes some deliberate thought. It's not as easy as putting pen to paper. So in all of this, let's talk about the green transition that cities are making. It's everywhere. Some people call it greenwashing, but sustainability in cities and just making it greener is everywhere, especially here in the Middle East, of course. But can we talk about this transition? And it doesn't automatically mean that it it is more equitable for societies. How can we make it more inclusive, though? Yeah, it's, I mean, overall, like, we need to do something about climate change. Like, we're on the wrong path. So going green on our economy is a must-do. It's not a nice-to-have. And, you know, when you change big systems like this, there's going to be some winners and losers in the process. And so the question of like, how do you deliberately make that transition with inclusivity in mind, I think is a very good one. And, you know, first is like thinking about, you know, a lot of this stuff needs to be first driven by government incentives in order to make that transition. I mean, in fact, like people don't know, but Tesla survived because they got a $500 million grant from the Department of Energy in the US. Like that grant is what allowed them to build the company that they have today. And it was a government, it was a very large government subsidy. And so, you know, there's controversy about whether you they should or should not have done that. But what I will say is, in my opinion, without that, we wouldn't have seen the wild success of an electric vehicle company that is now driving the conversation around, you know, electrifying the entire, all all cars in the world. And so, you know, you can say what you will about, should you be giving money to billionaires in that way? But it, it did work in terms of changing the conversation and the narrative. Yeah. And so what I will say about electric vehicles is like, they are expensive. So you now need to then, you know, it's fine to start at the top of the market, but then how do you bring it to the masses? And so getting it down to a price point that everyone can afford and the incentives to purchase those vehicles, because today, you know, the subsidies, you know, go to people who purchase those vehicles who tend to be wealthier, you know, and there's sometimes income caps and they try to like balance it. So it's not the very wealthy who get it, but it's also not like the very marginalized who are getting it either. So I think being really thoughtful about how you design those programs is one. Two is with things like once you've incentivized, you know, electric vehicles or solar on houses, there's a whole like industry that jumps up around that, right? Like solar installers. And so why not have a lot of programs to train specifically marginalized communities to be the ones who have skilled labor to go do that work? right? So helping people get the job training to participate in that economy is really important. And then, you know, like, there's also kind of a procurement and a sourcing piece of of this. So electric vehicles and a lot of the green economy requires sourcing materials from places like 
Zambia, Congo, like very poor developing countries that historically have been exploited in different ways, right? And and so and in some ways, like that isn't too different than what happens with oil extraction. And so it's beneficial to society writ large to make this change, but there are also environmental costs to some of these changes. And so, yeah, big ones. And, and that might be by country or it might be like, you know, you can electrify the grid, but if the source of the grid is still coal, like, you know, there's a, I mean, I think over time, you know, all the, it's expensive to do this and those transitions can happen, but it's not as cut and dry, I think, as the narrative would suggest. Are you seeing it happen though at a faster pace? that transition, the, the, the green transition, or are we still lagging? And, you know, these things go in waves. So I think it's, it accelerates really quickly and there's a lot of excitement. And then the reality of, you know, how hard some of these things are takes the edge off and then it accelerates again. So it's a, it's a sort of two steps forward, one step back. But I think at least now there's acknowledgement that things need to change versus like constantly having the conversation of like, do things really need to change? You know? <laughs> Vishreen, well, tell us what you're currently working on. I know you're at Nextdoor and you're at the foundation as well, but are you working on anything else at the moment that you can share? You know, I, I love to just work with young people at Stanford and, and try to help them think about the complexities of, that they're going to walk into. I mean, they're, they're the people who are going to create new businesses that are working in cities. And so how can they like participate? How can they understand the complexity? How can they do the least harm? So I love, I love sort of mentoring young people. And then I think, you know, through my work at Nextdoor, we're thinking more and more about how to build civic engagement, social cohesion, through technology. So how can technology be like a source of good, right? Like, so how can you combat, you know, this, this real lack of community that's happening? And, and like, what are the little things that neighbors can do to help each other? Right? How can they show up in a time of crisis? If a hurricane's coming, what can you do to go help your neighbor prepare or help them get out safely? And it's, it's this kind of peer to peer, like civic, power that I think is really interesting that technology can unlock in a way that is very hard for us to do otherwise. And you mentioned that that technology is only available in the States. Is Nextdoor only available in the States or is it elsewhere as well? No, we're in 11 countries around the world. 11 countries. Okay. All right. Well, let's do some rapid fire questions. To you, what does the perfect inclusive city look like and how far away are we from this? I think an inclusive city is a place where you have equal opportunity regardless of your station in life. And so I think there's very few places in the world that that exists. And I wish that weren't the case, but I think we're pretty far away from it. But I think it's something we should aim for. Yeah, well said. What would you say is the biggest challenge when it comes to building inclusive cities? I'd say vested interests and fear of change. It's oftentimes a failure of imagination. People think that if I give this thing up, then I'm losing something rather than seeing like, hey, actually, I might gain something, right? Like if you allow development, density of development in the neighborhood, actually, that might be better for the neighborhood in the long run. 
and better for you personally, not, not a bad thing, but all anyone can kind of see is, oh, I don't want an apartment building next to my house. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is true. Who is your role model and why? My role model is probably my father because he was someone who in his field, he worked in public health, was able to make like really big systemic change. And he worked on childhood vaccines mostly and ORS, but is sort of like credited with saving about, you know, 70 plus million lives around the world through his work. And so just someone very close to me who was able to make a big impact. Wow, that is big, uh, big shoes to fall. (laughs) Uh, uh, One piece of career advice that still resonates with you today. I'd say stay curious, like being curious about what's happening without judgment is really important. And, you know, not getting discouraged by other people's limitations. (laughs) So people will always say, like, I'm a, I work in technology, but I'm not a engineer or a technical person. And oftentimes, especially earlier in my career, people would say, well, you know, you can't do that because you're, you're not an engineer. <laughs> like, well, you know, actually, there's a lot you can do and learn within a field without having, you know, 100% of every qualification. Oh, what a hopeful note to end on. Actually, that's perfect. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Shireen, for joining us. This has been incredibly interesting. Thank you so much, Tanisha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then tune in every month where we'll be speaking to inspiring women from all walks of life and at various stages of their careers, exploring their challenges and uncovering the secrets behind their success. Join us where we'll be breaking down barriers and bridging gaps in the world of real estate. This is Cityscape Wire.